Georges Collinet here with another Afropop close-up. Sibo Dubé traveled from Zimbabwe to the UK, seeking acceptance for her sexuality. Instead, she encountered a potentially deadly obstacle. This episode, Shackled Love, LGBT asylum seekers in the UK. Produced by Hannah Harris-Green and David Waters and hosted by Hannah Harris-Green. When I'm asked like all the time like to describe myself and like how do you know that you're gay, prove that you're gay, like how do you do that? For me to describe myself, I just say that I'm just a normal person and I have I have an open heart. I have an open heart and this is just who I am. I can prove it because I can kiss a girl and I can do you you can't prove it. It's just who you are, it's in you. It's not something that you you physically do it's just who you are if you're queer and you live somewhere where it's safe enough to come out you probably have to deal with people who just don't believe you they tell you it's just a phase or it's a choice or you're just being difficult but for someone like Sibo getting people to believe she's who she says she is could be life or death it started at a boarding school in Bulawayo when she was 13 so the initiation process basically is like, it's an excuse for the seniors to take the piss out of the freshmen. They'll tell you, today is celebrity day. I got dressed up, I was so excited. I was like, P Diddy, I was ready. She told me, get on the chair and then pretend that this is the swimming pool here in front of you and dive in. I was mortified. I was like, what? Like, are you serious? It's floor, it was like hardwood floor like that. Yeah, they literally like make you feel like you really need to do it or, you know, you're not in. It was, it was crazy. And actually I did, I swam all the way to the other end of the <laughs> It went really well from there. That's when I started experiencing different feelings within myself. They were quite confusing for me. It's weird cause like I've been, you know, like I'd been in contact with girls before, but when I was younger and I was thinking, you know, we're just playing and I didn't think it was who I am. I had one girl that was like my my very close friend. We were like sisters. So confided in her about this these feelings, you know, this this nightmare I was having. And then she was like, you know, if that's who you are, then you need to be careful because I don't know how other people are gonna feel about it. It's not normal. And little did I know that she was gonna go and say something about it. After I told her, all I kept doing that whole evening was obsessing whether she was all right, was she still my friend? Like, that's how it was, literally, like, are you still my friend, are you okay? Come sit next to me and, you know, I was, I was just, I was trying too hard. It got back to me, it was like, yeah, I'd even left the school. So everyone in the school already knew, but I didn't know that they knew. So everyone was kind of like being, slide towards me like and I wasn't understanding like why why are you looking at me like that and then when 
the boys approached me and they were like, so what are you saying about this this rumor about you being a lesbian? I was like, huh? They were like, yeah, everybody knows, everybody knows. Growing up, I was always told like, I shouldn't be in town by myself. This is how my dad used to keep us like caged in. He'd tell us, if you walk alone in town, you're gonna get kidnapped. And I don't even know like how I even built up that, that courage to like think, you know, I'm going to that bus stop. One of the drivers approached me and he said to me, you know, why are you crying? Where are you going? And I, I, I told him, I said, I'm running away. And he was like, okay, I'll come get in the front and I'll take you. The whole way through, I was thinking to myself, my dad said, I'm a young girl, I'm gonna get kidnapped. But at the same time, I'm thinking, deep down inside, I was thinking, okay, like, I'm free. This rumor, it started spreading around town. We were catching school buses. Everyone in the school buses knew, the drivers knew. It was, it was getting out of hand. And people started roughing me up in town. Like, there wasn't a day I'd come back with my uniform intact. So my mum started arranging some, some way to get some passports prepared and she sold, um, she sold our family home to buy us tickets to come here. And then we left 2005 when I was 14. But this freedom didn't last. When she was 19 years old, Sibo did something she couldn't take back. One night, she took a taxi to the movies with her friends. She says the driver was her friend's grandfather, and he became angry with them for being out late, which led to an altercation. The night ended with Sibo and her friends stealing the car. They confessed to the robbery. Sibo was sentenced to two years in prison, and she thought she would be free again once her sentence was over. But one day, she was in the kitchen where she worked as a prison cook. One of the officers came in with the letter, deportation order, bang, that was it. Read through it, I think there's somewhere there that says you can appeal, that's it, bye. The first thought that came to my head is, what am I gonna do if I end up back in Zimbabwe? Cause now I'm a older version of me and a more out there version of me, like what is going to happen? You know, oh my gosh, I'd be slaughtered. <laughs> Sibo lost her legal status when she pled guilty to the robbery but she was sure that going back to Zimbabwe would be as good as a death sentence. So she claimed asylum on the basis of her sexuality. Her ability to stay in the UK depends on whether or not the Home Office believes that she is gay, and that being gay means that she would be in danger if she were to be deported. Back in 2003, the UK recognized that gay people from certain countries were part of a persecuted political group and eligible for asylum. But since then, queer asylum seekers have faced invasive and humiliating questioning from the UK Home Office to prove their cases. And sometimes, even when the Home Office is convinced that an asylum seeker is in fact gay, they still deport them to countries where homosexuality is illegal, arguing the asylum seeker could just pretend to be straight. From prison, Sibo was sent to Jarlswood, an immigration detention center where women wait out their unresolved immigration cases, either until they are deported, released back into the UK, or in some cases, until they die inside Jarlswood's walls. 
the first thing you see, there's a big metal gate. There's like a razor wire that goes over the top of the gate. Just the minute you get inside the gate, you feel, you know, the, what is it? Is it the nerves? It starts kicking in. And as soon as you get into the big gate, all you see is just a door. Yeah, a little door. The first thing that hit Sibo as she was moving in was that she was still locked up. And it wasn't until later that she realized she didn't know when she was going to get out. I saw a message, a message on the, a message on the wall, and it said, God is in control, finally released, 2009 to 2013. And it kind of just made me think, like, am I going to be here for, for that many years? When you're in bed in Yarlswood, lying still, and it's all quiet, you hear keys and radios. Nowadays, when I hear jingling keys, like, I think the door's about to be locked or something. You hear doors closing. You hear people crying outside. There are, like, a few nights where I heard people screaming, help me, help me, help me, in the middle of the night. You're hurting me, like, get away from me, get off me. They've tied me up, someone look, someone look out your window. There are a few nights where I heard that. When you're looking out of the window in Yarlswood, what you can see is just basically wasteland, mainly just bushes and there's a fence. I would think about um, jumping out the window. (laughs) Not... Not like, not in a suicidal way, but I'll think about jumping out the window just to feel a bit free. What the air feels like on the other side of the, of the window, on the, other side of, on, on the other side of the fence, what does the air feel like there? I'd wonder if anyone's ever been over there. And if you have, like, how did you get there? And do I think I could get there? You know, would I ever see like the other side of that window? Would I ever see the other side of that bush? And in all this, just as she would get to know people, they'd be gone. Their people would get called and told, look, you've got a pass from reception and you never see them again. Their people would get told you're going to the healthcare and you never see them again. Then she met Maureen. I was in Yarswood and I was like, um, I was in the choir. And like she was sitting around, like she looked like she didn't know what she was doing. We asked her like, do you want to join? And then she was like, yeah. I thought she was nice. <laughs> so we were actually quite a, like a large group of us because we were all known like in Yarswood as like um, I don't like to use this context, but they used to say we were the gay group. So most of the people they didn't really associate with us as much. So we used to associate with each other in our group. And Maureen was new. We were like all young. And we saw her and we thought, okay, Maureen's young too, she could be involved. Maureen had managed to live in Uganda into her 20s, keeping her sexual identity concealed from all but her closest family. She even lived with another woman before she was discovered and run out of town. At first, Maureen hoped things would calm down at home and she would be able to go back. Her UK visa was short term. But anti-gay sentiment in Uganda only grew worse, and Maureen eventually decided to claim asylum. She was detained during an appointment with immigration officials. Unlike Sibo, Maureen had never committed a crime in the UK. I got closer with them, we became friends, we used to look out for each other. Actually, 
the first time that she came to our room, she, Maureen's like first year, she was very cool towards me, like very, very, I don't know whether she was trying to play hard to get or what, but she, she didn't really talk to me much at first. She's lying, I wasn't cool to her. We used to play a lot, play fight, because she used to bully me. <laughs> in a not in a bad way. <laughs> I, I, I used to take the piss out of her, so I used to always call her like the short one. Like that's what I used to call her. I see short one, and, <laughs> and yeah, and I used to like just make funnies with her, and she would kick me, and we grew like very close in like a really short period of time. Cause I found that Maureen is um, a, Maureen is a very very easy to talk to. And it's so easy for you to just fall into like a pattern with her. It's so easy for you to fall into a pattern with her where you where you just feel like you just tell her everything. She would be texting me, what are you doing? What are you up to? Come, let's chill. I used to go to Maureen's room. I used to pick her up and I used to go outside with her. And we used to sit in the garden and we used to talk for hours, like just talk. And we became like really, really good friends. Like we very, very close friends. She was a friend. Yeah, she was a friend. Some people were released, some people were deported. And it kind of remained me and Sibyl in a way that if I was down, the only person to talk to would be Sibyl. If she is down, the only person to talk to is me. We were so close that people realized that we had feelings for each other even before asking questions. Are you guys together? Are you guys together? Are you guys like a couple? Yeah. By the time I started picking her up and going to the garden with her, I already knew that I wanted to be more than friends with her. But at that time, it was difficult because I was kind of caught in a limbo. Okay, maybe her, she had, you know, she, she, she had her feelings for me and she wasn't telling me. I didn't know whether Maureen wanted to be in any relationship with me. I didn't know what to do or what to say to her, but I just thought it's better for me to like build a relationship first like get to know her and let her get to know me and maybe at some point she'll she'll start fancying me as well i can't say i denied it she was my very good friend i didn't deny my feelings for her but i hadn't realized them until when she was away from me how i felt i missed her you know i just wanted to see her i just wanted to be on the phone with her i kind of stopped holding on to i want to go home i want to go home i had somebody there with me that day, I have it in my mind. It was, it was confusing, it was devastating. I remember watching her go. I even refused to hug her, bye. On the 12th of December, 2014, I was being deported. I watched, I watched the officer taking her out of the door. Like, out, people were saying bye to her and hugging her, me, I couldn't. I walked back to my room and some other friends came to me and they said, let's pray, Maureen, she won't go. She has a judicial review pending. I was given five five escorts and they were really big guys. So they were, they basically their job is to, if you resist, they have to tie you up, pick you up, put you on a plane. That's their job. They said to me, we're going to have to shred your paperwork. We're going to have to take away your boxes. You know, we're going to have to buy you some normal underwear for girls. We're going to have to buy you some normal clothes for girls because, you know, we don't want to, you to draw attention to yourself. We'll buy you a dress or something on the way. We're on the road. 
to the airport and they were talking to me slowly about like what's going on like okay we haven't received any information from the home office so we're, we're just going to carry on until they tell us to stop and the and the lawyer wasn't telling us anything her solicitor was not saying anything i was calling the next time i talked to her she said oh you really did call my phone and like she was doing everything she could i was literally sitting right in front of the airplane and i was looking at it all that was left was for them to open the door and i walk up the steps that was it and then they get a call from the home office saying are you still with her and they said yeah we still have her and they said okay stop she's not being deported today Almarine's phone calls had worked. Sibo's solicitor was able to get the deportation stayed just in time. When she told me, Maureen, it's been cancelled, I couldn't scream. I didn't even know what to do. I just say, yay, thank God. Then I remember I ran out into the, the corridors, yeah, and I was telling people, Sibo is not going, Sibo is not going, her ticket has been cancelled. And then... I received a call from people like in Yarlswood because I was taken to another detention centre which was closer to the airport because it was too late for them to take me back to Yarlswood and I received a call from someone in Yarlswood and they were saying to me like if you see how Maureen is she looks devastated she's not eating and she's not you know she's not herself she's lost weight she looks sick when are you coming back call her talk to her do something (laughs) Jackie was telling me Maureen Oh my God, I can't wait for Sybil to come back because I can't say anything to you. I'm not even here. All of us don't matter to you, only Sybil matters. Honestly, that's when I felt like it could be more than just a friend. I found you. I found you. I found you. So the whole time I was there, like, yeah, Maureen, are you okay? Are you okay? I miss you. I know this. I was thinking otherwise, but I didn't know that she was thinking otherwise too, you know. And then I got back to Yarlswood. So we used to like go over to each other's room like overnight and we would watch films. In the rooms it's like literally two beds, TV, table, chairs. So obviously like there wouldn't be much space to sit for four people. So we'd have to like share the bed. Then we shared the bed, me and Maureen, and then we cuddled. And then we're just playing silly under the covers, and then we ended up kissing. And then, you know, it was weird because we were friends, and then we were thinking, okay, where does this take us? Is it going to spoil our friendship? Obviously, I wanted to be in a relationship with Maureen for a long time, and for me to, for me to then like be open to her about it, it was terrifying. Then we just talked about it. She asked me, so you, how do you feel about me? So I said to her, I love you. And she said to me, ah, as a friend, because you've always said you love me. I said to her, you, how do you feel? She said, I love you too. I said, so should we be together? I said, yeah, I want to be with you. As of this recording, Sibo and Maureen live with Sibo's mother in Watford, England. Maureen was cleared to stay in the UK in July, while Sibo is still fighting for legal status. 
The uncertainty is constant, but they haven't lost hope. They still think of a song that some of the women used to sing back in the choir at Yarl's Wood. You're going to try and make me sing, aren't you? I knew it. <laughs> <coughs> <laughs> it says, Grateful, so grateful for all that you have done. I am so grateful for all you have done. It's a lovely song. It's called Grateful. My experience in detention and with all that's happened is just to continue to be grateful for what I have rather than to keep complaining about the things that I don't have. And I'm like, yes, I don't have a visa. I don't have this. I don't have that. But I have freedom. I'm still in the country. There's some people who are not. There's some people who don't have either of them. So... It's just the song is about that. It's about being grateful for what is here in front of you now. With my whole heart, I give to you praise. That's this is. The song is about being grateful for what is here in front of you. For Siebel and Maureen, that's each other. This Afropop close-up was made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. But to keep this series going, we need your support. Visit afropop.org and make a donation. Every dollar counts. For Afropop Worldwide, I'm Hannah Harris-Green. (laughs) 